this is an assumption and it is in no way meant to be a statement of pride, but I suspect that if you added up the number of persons who have matriculated to seminary and the ministry from Riverside, we would win the contest. Dana, you are in a long line of people from this church who have heard their name called. We are grateful that you listened. This morning's uh, passion text for me comes out of something I've been struggling with in my life for a long time. And I can only define it as cynicism. And the texts that I chose to hear this morning are texts that I think particularly offer us a way to negate the power of that emotion or point of view. The first comes to us from Psalm 8, and the second from Romans 8. Hear the word as it is given to us in the text. It is a statement of praise. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that all you have established. What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And again in praise, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And our second text is a a song two. In fact, it is from the letter of Paul. It is a song lifting up the words of hope. Here now from Romans 8. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption 
the redemption and reconciliation of our bodies. For in hope, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Like most people, I was infected with the cynic virus in high school. 1970, to be exact, 11th grade, Chapel Hill High School, where we caught the infection from bumping into college students and professors on campus. Apparently, they had been dealing with the disease around the university for decades, only they just looked like the normal symptoms of college life. Cynicism was in the air we breathed, and to be infected was quite fashionable. The thing with cynicism is that it provides for us an armor of protection from being disappointed while at the same time making us look quasi-intelligent. Some people just go numb. Their affections for family, faith, and friends no longer apparent, they walk away and around with an entitled sense of complete indifference. Apathy is the desired state of being. Duh is the normal remark. And rolling your eyes, the typical expression. There's something quite positive about being so negative, you learn. Wallowing around in our own nattering nabombs of negativity, that'll take you back. And arrogantly feeling powerful shows up in the most sarcastic, rude, jerk kind of way where you critique everyone and everything but ourselves. Remember, I'm speaking out of personal knowledge. The beauty about cynicism is that you don't have to stand on anything. You stand on nothing, nothing to lose, nothing to defend, nothing to care for, nothing to hope for. And here's the really safe part, nothing to love. Therefore, nothing to be hurt by. Some get snarky about anything or everything that reeks of tradition, institution, or truth. They spend most of their psychic energy thinking up funny but ugly things to say to others who will laugh and think that they are smart. And since everything is dark and negative, sarcasm gives us a reason for being. Usually the disease starts the same way for everyone, a loss of innocence, an ideal or hope has been dashed, something happens to question our faith and trust in others or in life, a divorce in the family, too many priests arrested for abuse, your political candidate doesn't win, whatever, the list is legion. Maybe it's just a part of growing up, like puberty with all the same hormonal horrors associated with it, 
So high school is the normal place for it to begin. In my class, there were eight of us clearly infected by this virus, and most everyone else in the school on some level or another. We created a voluntary quarantine for ourselves, gathering in our own little clique apart from the rest of the community. We even had a name, the Balzas, a name, the origin of, to this day, no one in our group can explain. Mostly we just kept to ourselves and out of the mainstream by playing air band instruments to the Allman Brothers Live at Fillmore East album, the best album ever recorded, and by going to movies over and over again, prominently only two, Woodstock and M.A.S.H., two of the most cynical movies there are in the world, with a shared cynical worldview about institutional power. Actually, we kept score on who saw those movies the most, and I came in fifth among the eight at 13 for Woodstock and 12 for MASH. We even had T-shirts made that said, we used to be disgusted, now we're just amused. And in some kind of twisted, ironic way, we found hope in our cynicism. As I've grown up, I've come to see that this terrible illness affects each of us on some level or another, and it is like the mythic snake that eats its tail, Ouroboros, that devours and diminishes itself as we do ourselves by trying to devour and diminish others. The more we feed, the worse the infection. Looking back, it had become epidemic in our country that was drawing deeper and deeper into darkness and despair. We had just come through arguably the most divisive and unsettling decade since the Civil War. The dark spirit of the Vietnam War and the draft hovered over the souls of every teenage boy and every parent. Those who gallantly served and those who didn't. The three assassinations of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King were terrifying. The Cuban Missile Crisis Kent State, and especially the race riots in 1965, along with the struggle for civil rights, caused our country to have a widespread sense of PTSD. And over that hovered the dark mushroom cloud of apocalyptic nuclear destruction. It's easy to see how infectious cynicism Became. It was either that or abject fear or violent anger or just burying your head in the sand, which took the shape usually of Valium or alcohol or marijuana or any other drug that you could get your hands on legally or not. But if cynicism in the 1970s was epidemic, it is pandemic now. The trust in every institution has been lost. 
in government, in politicians, in media, in newscasters, in religion, education, medicine, and law. Maybe for some good reason, but not completely. The Internet is full of snarky rants by cynical people who see their purpose in life to be critics of everything, especially traditional institutional values. David Foster Wallace wrote, Postmodern irony and cynicism has become an end in itself, a measure of hip sophistication and literary savvy. Few artists dare to try to talk about ways of working toward redeeming what's wrong because they'll look sentimental and naive to their weary ironists. Irony's gone from liberating to enslaving. There's some great essay somewhere that has a line about cynicism and irony being the song of the prisoner who's come to love his cage. Think about things now, he says. And I did. Some of the most popular television shows are Breaking Bad, South Park, The Good Wife, House of Cards, all feeding our cynicism. Since cynicism is a virus, there is no cure. One is always infected by it, like one is always infected by the chickenpox. At the right time, in fact, and circumstances, it may pop out again ten times worse like shingles, and all you can do is wait for it to recede before you get back to normal. But there are ways to keep it at bay. The first is humility. Turning away from that dark pull of arrogant pride and hubris we call our ego. And this happens only, I think, when we turn toward something much greater and bigger and more transcendent than we are. I would say the holy other. As in the eighth psalm, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you've established, we are What are we human beings that you are mindful of us? It puts us in our place as human. Not completely broken or dark or sinful. A little less than God, but not God. You have made them a little lower than God, he says, and crowned them with glory and honor. And with that, we cannot be cynical about God's creation, nor can we be cynical about each other nor ourselves. These are the words of a person who has come to understand one's place in the world. Compared to the magnificence of God's sovereignty and creation, who are we as human beings to stand over apart from that in cynicism and with criticism? In the end, it is the posture of awe and mystery, the way of praise and wonder on our knees in worship of something much greater than we are. 
and it helps keep cynicism at bay. While in Aspen this past, well, week, a week past, one of the presentations I attended was an interview by David Brooks of a Methodist minister named Adam Hamilton. Adam had started a church in Kansas City that went from zero to 20,000 people. So I sat in to hear what the secret was, and it turned out that Adam was not unlike I am in his theological and biblical understanding. He read the Bible the same way I do, in context rather than just text out by itself. He understood that the sexuality issue was meant to be inclusive rather than exclusive. He was seen as being a progressive minister and the church a purple church, that is to say conservative red and liberal blue merging together into one body to make purple. And I couldn't understand how, since that seems so countercultural these days, how he could be a 20,000 member church. David Brooks kept asking him question after questioning, and I learned from him things that we can do differently, possibly in a way that might be more organic and more true to our calling as a movement for reconciliation. And after the, uh, near the end, it was time for questions and answers, and uh, I raised my hand, even though I promised myself I would never do that in that setting, for the only uh, time in the whole conference, and I asked this question. I'm not sure if it's according to the rules, but I would truly like to hear David Brooks share how his faith informs his work. There was a pause, and David jumped right in, and what he said last is what I'm going to say first. He said, I believe that humanity is both good and bad, and that we can do amazing things for others while we can also do incredibly dark things to others. That there's something in us, he said, I can only call sin. And that sin infects our lives and our world, each of us. He went on to say he did an interview on the Charlie Rose show, and he used that word, sin, in just that context, and as soon as he got home, there was an email from one of his editors saying, you are a secular writer, not a sacred writer. Do not use religious words like sin anymore. I suggest you use the word insensitive. At which point, David Brooks smiled, paused, and said, you know, that hardly deals with the depth of it does it? His point is that we are all flawed by sin, especially when we are most cynical. To a newspaper inquiry many years ago asking famous authors what is wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton responded, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. 
remembering who we are in the big scheme of things, that we are not God, that we are biased, limited in scope, and prone to sin as the sparks fly upward. This is the first thing we can do to keep cynicism at bay. O Lord, how majestic is thy world. But the second thing Brooks also said I agree with, and that is that during the campaign season, in order to need an uplift, Brooks said, he began to read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, in which Dr. King points out that the arc of history bends toward justice, and that, King's un- uh, that Brooks' understanding is that no matter what it looks like now, that at the end of things there will be justice, and there will be joy, and there will be redemption and reconciliation, and that that is the hope that grounds all of us in our history together. He never claimed what he was, Christian or Jew. He only shared what he believed. And that whole instinct of hope at the end of history grows right out of the Romans 8 passage. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. For in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Patient hope is the other way to keep cynicism at bay. Now, there are times when believing in a sovereign God and hoping in the future seems absolutely impossible. In the face of terrible loss, war, hardship, injustice, pain, reverence and hope, nowhere to be found. But at these times, we can at least find the cross. And there we will find suffering and know that God suffers with us. On Good Friday, there was every single reason to be cynical. The government caved in to the want of the people, and Pilate voiced that oh-so-ultimate postmodern political response these days by asking, what is truth? And then washing his hands of the whole sordid reality. The religious institution caved in to law and righteousness and held Jesus accountable as being a heretic and combined with the governmental agencies became a great danger as the great religious theologian Barbara Brown Taylor summed it up. Jesus was not brought down by atheism and anarchy. He was brought down by law and order allied with religion, which is always a deadly mix. That leads to cynicism. And maybe for good reason in that case. The crowd is pitiful, shouting hallelujah one moment and crucify him the next. Even his friends let him down. They deny him three times, they sleep with him in the garden, and they literally run at the moment of his crucifixion. Only the women, so countercultural, so completely against the patriarchal system of that time, only the women stand up 
as being good characters. And at the end of Good Friday, every source of law and order, justice and comfort, politics and religion, community and friendship had been spoiled. How can you not be cynical? But Sunday came. In the dark pandemic of cynicism and despair in the world was stopped in its tracks by the rising of the sun and a new day dawning. Reverence and hope, the two things that keep cynicism at bay. Add them up, add them up, and they come out. It's alchemy. Add them up, and they come out as gratitude. Gratitude, which for the purposes of my sermon, at least, I think is the opposite of cynicism and is as close to a cure as you can get. So next time you start feeling the infectious disease of cynicism popping out, just try writing down five things you're grateful for and count your blessings. It's Pollyanna as it sounds. It will keep cynicism at bay.